We're in our fifth week going through 1 Peter. And we've come to a really challenging <laughs> stretch. I mean, could he have picked one more thing that's hard to get through? If you have a Bible, turn to this section, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, verse 7. Notice where he starts. My beloved, I beg you, strangers and resident aliens as you are. Now, this is the shift in the letter. When he uses that phrase, my beloved, he shifted into the main body of the letter. Up until now, he's been dealing with identity in two dimensions, our theological identity and our social identity. Theologically, who are you? I belong to God. Socially, who are you? I'm a stranger in the places where I live because I belong to God. So this theology, this, this relationship with God impacts our relationship with the society where we live. They now have their feet firmly planted in two different cultures. They're bicultural. Right? On the one hand, they're firmly rooted in their relationship with God, but they also live in a place. And just like anybody who grows up in two cultures, it produces tensions. And so in this state of exile, he shifts. He spent all of chapter 1 and half of chapter 2 saying, you got to get this. you got to wrap your mind around the fact that belonging to God is your fundamental identity. Who are you? I'm a Christian. I belong to God. That's the deepest, most core, durable sense of myself. That's what gives me worth. Not my successes. They don't give me worth. And my failures don't detract from my worth. My worth is that I belong to God. And this makes me an alien and a stranger because not everybody in our society belongs to God. So there's different values. There's competing cultures. And then what he does in verse 11 is he shifts... And he says, now let's talk about how that needs to shape your behavior. So in chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 11, he shifts from identity to behavior. What is the behavior that should flow out of this bicultural identity? And what does he say? Abstain from the passions of the flesh. There are desires inside of us that that are conducting a military campaign against true life. And, and if we live by these passionate impulses, they will enslave us, dehumanize us, and deform us. So he says in verse 12, keep up good conduct among the pagans, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice there are things we do as Christians, those of us who are Christians, that people who are not, he's not using pagan in a negative way here. Pagan was a, a positive label for religions that were not Christian. They would have claimed themselves to be pagan or some, their version of that word. He's not using it um, like... Uh, we would use, some people in Christian societies would use it today. But what he's pointing out is that there are things we value if we are Christians that people who are not Christians look at as hate. They perceive certain behaviors of ours, 
Certain attitudes of ours, certain beliefs of ours, they look to people who don't, who do not belong to God, they look like hate. They, it looks like evil. It looks antisocial. And he's saying, you, in that environment where you are perceived as antisocial, as hateful, the key for you is to hold the line on holiness, on good conduct. So why? Why? So that one day, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, they won't say, man, the church really messed that one up. But they'll actually say, you were right all along. What's happening here is that he's shifting from identity to how we should behave. As people who belong to God, living in a society which does not give its deepest allegiance to the God revealed in Jesus Christ, our big challenge is to be holy. And then, in verses 13, through the end of our reading in chapter 3, verse 7, he shows us what he means by holiness. And it is not what any of us expect. He gives us three case studies of holiness in situations of powerlessness. Three paradigmatic examples, three paradigms of what, what a person whose fundamental identity is that they belong to God, when they're in a situation where they're treated socially with hostility, how do they respond? What is holy behavior? He's not interested in holy behavior in the abstract. He's interested in what is holy behavior for these people that he's writing to in the actual situations they're living in. And each of these situations have one thing in common. Powerlessness. In, ch in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, he says, What does holiness look like for citizens who are being treated unjustly by a government? And then he says, what does holiness look like for wives that are being treated unjustly by husbands who are not Christians? And then third, or that's the third, the second one is what does holiness look like for slaves that are mistreated because of their Christianity by their masters? And in all three of these situations, he says that the Christian response, the holy response, get ready because this is very difficult for us to swallow. The holy Christian response. He uses the same word in all three situations. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's the holy response. In verse 18. Servants be subject to your masters with all respect. That's the holy response. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands. So up front, let's name the elephant in the room. When we read that, when we hear that, it sounds to me like we are being called to accommodate a dominant, oppressive status quo. It sounds to our modern ears like we're being told just roll over and accept the tyranny 
of the dictator, of the slave owner, of the abusive husband. It, it strikes the ears of those of us living through the current Me Too news cycle that Peter is unwilling to resist oppressive power regimes. But that is not the case. And if you'll stay with me, I hope I can show you how it's not the case without killing what we are called to do with the death of a thousand qualifications. See, that's our challenge. And because this is so complicated and I am so ill-equipped for this task, I'm only going to do it with the first one because we've got a second service coming and we don't have enough time for what I could pull off to have to do all three of these. Let me show you how it works out, especially with the first one. And, and for that, let's go straight to the heart of the whole section. It's verse 21. This posture, subjection. He says, this after all is what came with the terms of your call. The Messiah, too, suffered on your behalf, leaving behind a pattern for you so that you should follow the way he walked. He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So unjust suffering. He didn't deserve it. When he was insulted, he not only didn't deserve it, but look what next. He didn't insult in return. So two qualities. One, unjust suffering. And two, a refusal to retaliate. He didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he gave himself up to the one who judges justly. Christ suffered unjustly and did not reciprocate with abuse. Instead, in the unjust suffering, he entrusted himself to God. The one who judges justly. So to be subject in this passage. To be subject in situations of unjust suffering. Is to follow in the footsteps of the crucified Messiah. And it, it is to refuse to take part in the automatism of revenge. So while the Christian calling to subjection, subjugation, it appears on first glance as a religious legitimation of oppression, this is not what it is. Instead, this is a calling to struggle against the politics of violence in the name of the crucified Messiah. What we are seeing here is that for Christians, all roads in all situations must go through the cross. What we see is that for Christians, every situation, no matter how complex, how painful, how unjust, all roads lead to and through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We are seeing that the suffering of Christ was not only for our redemption, it was also for our example. And this is a pushback. 
What Peter is doing is he's pushing back against the three temptations Christians face when Christians live in environments or homes or at workplaces or in societies where they are resisted, where they are persecuted, where they are treated with hostility. He says, look, there are three temptations you face and you cannot give in to any of them. Number one, you have to resist the temptation to assimilate. That's a strong temptation. You're at school. There's this huge pressure that if you hold your view, you look like you hate people. You look like you're antisocial. You look like you're actually harming people. And you feel this deep desire to just compromise and go along so that you are no longer treated with hostility. Can't go that road. And number two, we have to refuse the temptation to mount a revolution. We are not to declare war on unjust governments. That is not an option for Christians. And number three, we must resist the, uh, the third temptation, which is to withdraw. We are not to isolate ourselves from the wider society by forming some kind of group of Christians that are cut off from the world. What he calls us to here is engagement. Not assimilation, not revolution, and not withdrawal, but engagement. But he calls us to participate in the life of the society in which we live, even when participation results in rejection and suffering. And he's already told us it inevitably will. This, is, this call to be subject is the negative of withdrawal. It's the negative of revolution. It's the negative of assimilation. Christians are called to engage, but it's a particular kind of engagement. Christians are to follow the path of Christ's crucifixion. That's the form of engagement. And when we do, we will not revolt. We will not withdraw. We will not assimilate. When we look to Jesus, we see a fourth option. In situations of unjust suffering for our faith, when our deep loyalty to Jesus Christ places us on the margins of respectable society, when we become the victims of slander, animosity, and scorn, when our love and devotion to Jesus marks us out as enemies of the state, as social misfits, as disloyal to the prevailing social values, we in that moment engage by walking the path of the cross. The cross-shaped path that Jesus walked was not only for our redemption, it was for our example. We engage persecution through gentle subjugation. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Rather, true beauty is the secret beauty of the heart, of a sincere, gentle, and quiet spirit. That word gentle. Now jump over to chapter 3, verse 14. If you suffer because of your righteous behavior, God's blessing is upon you. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be disturbed. Sanctify the Messiah as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to make a reply to anyone who asks you to explain the hope that's in you. Do it, though, with gentleness. That's that word again. Gentleness. Meekness. It's a 
quality that's not much valued today. And sure, there's a certain kind of meekness that's the weapon of the weak, a debasing strategy of the powerless. But what we're called to here, gentleness in our our subjection to unjust persecution, this is not weak gentleness. This is strong gentleness. Strong, but not harsh. Strong, but not hard. This is the stance of the strong who feel no need to support their own sufferings by aggression, verbally or physically. Gentleness is the flip side here for respect. Fear for yourself and your own identity makes you hard. You present other people with a choice. Either they submit or they are rejected. Either they become like you or you make them get away from you. But this approach that he calls us to operates with this openness that refuses to use pressure. Passive pressure or explicit pressure. It refuses to use pressure and manipulation and threats. When you have this strong gentleness that you see in Jesus as he stands before Pilate, you can be fearless. We are secure in Christ. When we know that my identity is not my performance and my failures don't touch my identity, when my identity fundamentally is who are you? I belong to God. That's what gives me value. That's what gives me security. When you have that, then... You can be different without being afraid. We have no need to subordinate or damn others, but can allow others to be themselves. We will not try to win them with pressure. Now, let's look at this very difficult challenge to living with an unjust government. Throughout the Bible, starting in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He's writing this to people who are living under, most likely, the brutal emperor Nero. Now, throughout the Bible, there is a powerful and sustained attack on all abuse of power by human rulers. But it remains the case that even though tyrants can behave abominably, it is part of God's will that the earth should be ruled and governed by human authorities. Order is better than chaos in the Bible. Not in the French Revolution, and not in the American Revolution, but in the Bible. This is fundamental to a biblical, political theology. Order is better than chaos, even though order can turn into tyranny, and it frequently does. And even though our hatred of tyranny might lead us 
to some kind of revolutionary politics, Peter says no. Because Jesus said no. Be subject to the ruling authorities, but make sure at the same time that by your good behavior, you are shaming them in their folly and ignorance. This is how God in Christ defeated evil. And Peter is saying this is how citizens defeat evil. In other words, oppressive tyranny and violent revolution are not the only options. The way God establishes his rule on earth as in heaven Look at Jesus on the cross. Serving the true God by living a peaceful, wise, visibly good life is in the end far more revolutionary than overthrowing one corrupt regime and replacing it by another, as history shows us. When will we ever learn that when violence responds to violence, it makes rivers of blood and mountains of corpses? Look, this is really hard for those of us raised in America. It's hard for us for a whole bunch of reasons. One, because modernity gives us this myth of a clean slate. That you can fix a thing by making a clean slate. Wrong. That doesn't work. History shows us that is not the way it works. But, but there's a more basic reason we struggle with it than the myth of the clean slate. It's this. If you were raised in America from an early age, you learn the consensus view of history. And it's some version of this. Brave pilgrims set out in search of freedom from tyranny. They find the promised land where they must conquer the indigenous population as well as fight for their own independence. And then they engage in a civil war in order to liberate other people. And then they move westward across the continent depending on themselves to realize their dreams. And they're so blessed by God that now they can take the fight for liberty to others outside their borders. And I don't want to belittle the American story. It has underwritten hope for millions of families. But we have to recognize the constant theme in that story is that violence is necessary to secure and protect freedom. But as Christians... Our identity comes from a different story. As Christians, Peter is telling us, what is your identity story? It's the story that pivots upon a savior who comes on a donkey, is acclaimed the prince of peace, and through his suffering death, secures freedom. If we are going to be faithful to God, in the midst of an increasingly non-Christian and at many places 
anti-Christian society, we must learn to tell our story through the cross and not the American Revolution. We have to let the story of the cross be more fundamental to our political theology than all of the masters of modern political theology. We have to do what Peter did. We have to take... We have to say all roads in all complicated situations have to go through the cross. We have to learn to trace our history not through the American Revolution, not through the Civil War. If we are, if we are Christians, we are fundamentally not citizens of America. There's a sense, and we're, we're not citizens at all. We are, all of us who are Christians, we are we are, it doesn't matter if we're documented or undocumented. We are sojourners whose ultimate loyalty is to God. And like Abraham, the prototypical alien and stranger, Christians find their identity foremost in the fact that we are bound to a crucified God. So we're being called to a vigorous, active form of resistance to a risky engagement in the face of opposition, we must follow in the footsteps and the posture and the way of Jesus at his own crucifixion for us to be subject for the Lord's sake to unjust authorities is not for a moment a passive move. This is a determined move. This is not a capitulation to the status quo. This is not support of tyrants. This is a call to subversion. It is an active, not passive, determined, but not violent, strong, but not harsh, gentle, but not weak act of subversion. So to say it once again, to be a Christian is to learn that the great center, the beating heart of the universe is the cross of Christ. Christ in his crucifixion is the clue. You're ever in a complex situation? Look to the cross. That's the clue. Think through the cross. Meditate on the cross. That is the clue to all of reality, to all mysteries, to all challenges, to all knowledge. And so to be a Christian is to know that all roads lead to and through the cross. The suffering of Christ was for our redemption and our politics. And our view of government. It was not only for our redemption. It was for our example. And when we are facing unfriendly political forces. Unfriendly authorities. We are to identify with Christ's faithful witness in the face of suffering. Do you see? That's what Peter does. He takes this unjust situations. And he at the center of them does a meditation on the cross. So once again. We are called to resist the three basic temptations of suffering, assimilation, revolution, and withdrawal. Instead, we actively engage through subversive subjugation that shames the perpetrators into repentance. 
And then Peter brings up another situation where the Christians he was writing to were suffering unjustly because of following Jesus in a society that had a different set of value. He brings up slaves suffering because they were Christians, and he brings up Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands. And once again, what he says is tough for us. And we don't have time for me to show you how he is undermining slavery. And he is undermining hyper-patriarchy. And he is not telling abused wives to, 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 to not protect themselves. There are all of those super complicated questions that you should be asking of this passage. But the sermon that I showed up to my office to, with this morning was 70 minutes long to try to take all of that seriously. But what I'm trying to show you is how with the government, he puts the cross at the center and it challenges things. And he does that with slavery, and he does that with violent husbands too. Many a violent household, many an abusive workplace has been able to continue acting wickedly because people were afraid to speak out and have kept their heads down and put up with the abuse. But remember the context, the key to the entire section is that the crucifixion was the most unjust most wicked act in human history. And here was the one man who deserved nothing but praise and gratitude. Instead, he got rejected and beat up and killed. And so you see, Peter is not simply recommending that people remain passive while suffering violence for the sake of the faith. He's urging us to realize that somehow, strangely, the sufferings of the Messiah are not only the means by which we are rescued, they are the means by which Through our lives, the world is being rescued. In other words, suffering is not simply something through which the faithful people of God must go because they believe in God. It is in itself the way in which the dark powers that have ruled this world will exhaust themselves. It is the way in which the one-off victory won by the Messiah on the cross is your calling. The kingdom of God, the sovereign rule of the one God on earth as in heaven continues through crucifixions. And this is so hard. This is so hard for us to believe. I mean, think about... Think about how freedom is won in every Western movie you've ever watched and in every comic book that gets turned into a movie. And it's a demonic lie. And and I like to watch these movies. And I like to watch them with my children. But how am I going to help my children believe that's a total lie? This is so hard. What we are seeing is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, it points, it is the point around which everything in this world revolves. Somehow we have to see all the unjust suffering of God's people are caught up within the suffering of his son. Again, go back to verse 21. This, after all, is what came with the terms of your call. 
Because the Messiah too suffered on your behalf, leaving behind a pattern for you so that you would follow the way he walked. He committed no sin, nor is there any deceit in his mouth. When he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he gave himself up to the one who judges justly. So for the Christian, our marching orders were to do what Jesus did. Thomas Jefferson was wrong. When he said, every now and then we need the blood of a revolution. That's a demonic, demonic thing. You cannot get any further from this passage. Those of us who are Christians, we are the homeless people of God. We are a temple, a house under God's construction and a priesthood. And we offer God's presence wherever we find ourselves. And we are witnessing with our lives and our bodies when we suffer unjustly for Christ. In those moments with our bodies, we are witnessing to God. We are empowered in those moments by the Spirit to maintain allegiance to a crucified God. And why are we doing this? Go back to verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And you have to let the rest of this passage define that. He is no doubt talking about subjugation to unjust suffering. That's what honorable behavior is in this passage. Why do you do that? Why would you do that? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visit, visitation. We have given our deepest love and our full-hearted full-person response of loyalty to the king. And as we follow his crucifixion, his pattern of unjust suffering and refusal to retaliate, that is the good work Peter talks about. That's good work. He's not talking about generic moral behavior. The good, the good behavior that's hard work is that. And these deeds, these good deeds, they slowly... As time goes by, help those who do not know the one true God to see him and glorify him for themselves. In fact, almost a century after Peter wrote this letter, one of our forefathers, uh, when I say his name and I say his last name, you'll know where this is headed. Justin Martyr, that was his name. I don't know if they named him that at birth but I know after his death, he got the name. And listen to what he said. hundred years after Peter wrote this, and people were actually doing it. It is evident that no one can terrify or subdue us. And then he doesn't give an account of a revolution. You know what he's going to give an account of. What is the evidence that we are fearless For throughout all the world, we have believed in Jesus, and it is clear that although they beheaded us, and they crucify us, and they throw us to wild beasts, and to fire, and all other kinds of torture, we do not give up our guns. No. We do not give up our confession. But the more such things happen to us, the more do other persons, and in larger numbers, become faithful believers and worshipers of God through his name. There is one God. And this God has overcome the powers of darkness through his son. 
being crucified. And we should expect that by his spirit, he will cause the light of his glorious gospel to spread through this world. Through our faithful, suffering, prayerful witness. Let's pray.